Okay, Revelation chapter 14. Let's, let's hear these verses again. Revelation 14, verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. And Father, we fear You. We come before You, yes Lord, with a holy fear. And I pray You'll help us comprehend a little better, understand a little more. Not only of why this angel's call, why this message comes when it does, but what it means to us right now, even beforehand. And I pray that you would help us to live with this mindset. Would you come speak to us? We are here to listen, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a new show is about to drop on Amazon. So if you've got Amazon, don't watch it. It's starring one of my favorite actors, a guy by the name of David Tennant. Brilliant actor, actually. The show is called Good Omens, and I hope it flops. The premise, an angel and a demon team up together to find the Antichrist. As the four horsemen of the apocalypse have been summoned, and it's a race against time and against the end of the world, And it's just typical, especially right now, and I don't know if you've noticed this, of the number of shows and entertainment options out there that are making light of the end times. You know, trying to lessen the blow, as it were, of the reality of what the end of this age truly means. The devil would make biblical truth appear fictional. Uh, prophecy he would make seem laughable and the end of this age improbable. Well, it's not. 200 miles of blood-soaked ground from Basra to Megiddo will prove otherwise. There's nothing funny about the end times. Nothing entertaining about what is going to happen. Now, we covered that blood-soaked ground on Wednesday night in Revelation chapter 14. John describes the reaping of the earth in this chapter. And it's a frightening preview, a devastating, a graphically devastating preview of Armageddon. We read about the trotting of the great wine press of the wrath of God by none other than Jesus Himself. In fact, if you'll just listen to this, we referenced this on Wednesday, but Isaiah 63, a prophecy of Jesus in His return that reads as follows. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in His apparel, marching in the greatness of His strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And we talked about Wednesday, Jesus comes first to Basra, which is in Edom, which is the place in the wilderness. Why would He go there? Because that's where Israel is. Because that's where His people have been tucked away for three and a half years. Hidden away, protected, safe. We read about that in Revelation chapter 12. And Jesus apparently, based on the prophecies of Isaiah, He comes there first. 
and then makes his way up the 200 mile stretch from Basra up to Megiddo outside of Jerusalem. And we're told in verse 2 of Isaiah 63, the question is asked, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the wine press? And he responds, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help. I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That's a terrifying picture. The end will come. That end will come. As assuredly as Jesus fulfilled every prophecy of His first coming, literally and specifically, so He will fulfill every prophecy of His second coming, literally and specifically. The Bible has been proven true thousands of times over, historically, archaeologically, prophetically true. The the fact that people doubt this book in these days is testimony to the fact that people aren't reading it, haven't really looked at it perhaps recently. These prophecies will come to pass And if you don't know where you stand with Jesus Christ right now, they can be at best unsettling and at worst terrifying. And they should be. So, the world makes cable TV shows and tries to turn the warnings of a loving God into fanciful entertainment. But in spite of the skeptic, And in spite of the critic and the entertainer, the Lord keeps sending out His Word. You know what's encouraging to me? Paul said, the Word of God is not chained. You can't keep it down. You can try to take out those who teach it. You can try and take out the Bible from public discourse. You cannot chain the Word of God. My Word, he says, which goes forth from me, will not come back to me without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's word will not fail. And God keeps speaking to anyone who will listen right up to this point, this midpoint of tribulation. And at the midpoint, three angels come flying in. Three angels with three messages, visible to all. This is not a stealth mission. They're flying, we're told, in the mid-heaven, which is about the height of the sun, at least from our visual standpoint, for everyone to see. They circumnavigate the globe with three messages. Check them out this morning. The first angelic aviator, skies in, preaching an eternal gospel. Again, verses 6 and 7, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God! Give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. And you might read that and say, Wait, is that the gospel? He says it is. An eternal gospel, but it doesn't exactly sound like the gospel. Commentator Joseph Seiss says it is gospel. But it is the gospel in the form it takes when the hour of judgment has set in. 
It's good news. Still good news because especially here at this late hour, God is still calling. God is still extending the hand of salvation. The offer of salvation. Even when it's all falling apart, even when the world has gone to hell in a handbasket, God is still saying, fear me. Worship me. Receive my truth. Recognize our relationship. He's still calling to anyone who would respond, though apparently none will. The second angel sortie buzzes the tower, prophesying the downfall of Babylon the Great. Verse 8, and another angel, a second one followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality, that is, the anger of her pornea, her sexual immorality. So the second message comes in and all the paganism and commerce that has flowed down through the centuries from the earliest days of Babylon is now fallen. We're going to read about this and study it out. The fall of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 as it's indicated for us. But the influence of paganism right now in what was once Judeo-Christian America The influence of paganism is staggering. I just read this last week, a recent Pew Research Center poll, which suggests that paganism is the fastest growing religion in America. Check this out. 62% of Americans now hold New Age beliefs. Remember the New Age? We were all afraid of it back in the 80s. You know, that was the big buzz in the church. Oh, the New Age, the New Age, be careful of the New Age. Well, now it's just embraced. Now it's just part of the way people think. New Age beliefs like astrology, the presence of spiritual energy in trees or or in mountains. What's remarkable to me is those who identify as Christians were more likely than atheists and agnostics to hold at least one New Age belief. 61% of respondents who identify as Christians say they held at least one New Age belief compared with 22% of atheists and 56% of agnostics who said the same. Christians embracing pagan concepts and ideals. 67% of mainline Protestants. 47% of evangelicals and 70% of Catholics hold New Age beliefs of some kind. Pagan thought. Fully one third of evangelical Christians believe in psychics. Does anyone here believe in a psychic? I'm glad nobody raised their hands. Because I would have to call you an idiot. No, I would do it with love and compassion. Can you do that with love and compassion? I don't know. Maybe that's a mean-spirited thing to say. But I'm telling you, it shocks me what proclaimed Christians will believe beyond the pages of Scripture. Beyond what the Bible would tell us. Have you heard of Christian witches? This is new, at least to me. A former Jehovah's Witness, the revered Valerie Love, is hosting the first ever Christian Witches Conference in Salem, Massachusetts next month. In her Christian Witches Creed, Love wrote, I'm a Christian witch. I love my cross and my wand. I consult my tarot deck and my Bible. 
I adore and, and am devoted to Christ and the goddess. There's no conflict in what I do, what I say, or who I am. Whether I'm walking in nature, hanging out with fairies, or in high consciousness communication with angels, or commanding demons and spirits, or stirring a healing remedy in my cauldron, or pulling herbs for a tea, or speaking a spell, or dressing a candle, wherever I may be and whatever I am doing, I am never confused and I am never in denial. I am clear and certain I was sent here by God for God's good purpose. You know what Jesus said? Matthew twenty four eleven. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Matthew twenty four twenty four. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon will fall. Paganism is going to go down. Even as it spreads in our world, in our country, even as it's embraced by Christians. Why would it be embraced by Christians? Because they're not reading the Bible. Because they're unaware of the truth of the Word of God. I'll tell you what, it's all addressed here. Every false pagan belief is addressed in this book. Dealt with in this book. Proven wrong time and time again in this word. God has left nothing to chance. It is absolute truth down through the ages. And yet the rapid increase of deception and delusion and the misdirection of pagan philosophies and cultish concepts. Well, it should be a clear indication of where we are in the age. It should give us an idea of where we stand and I believe we are witnessing a big fat setup to following the beast third angelic air wing drops down proclaiming eternal torment to those who worship the beast and receive his mark and there would have been a time in my life where I'd say that's ridiculous who would do such a thing but everything is heading that way mentality and The increase of lawlessness, as Jesus says. It's all heading that way. Verse 9, here comes the third angel. Another one, a third one, follow them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Literally mixed in full strength. And we talked about this Wednesday is poured out undiluted. Poured out undiluted. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. How would you react to such a message? You might read it today and go, well, that's kind of harsh. It's only harsh if you don't listen. It's only harsh if people reject it. It is nothing short of love that God is saying these things now and has been saying them for 2,000 years, by the way. Giving fair warning, fair indication, saying, look, don't go down this. If you go this road, this is what will happen. I'm telling you now. And I'm looking out over a group of people that are not going down this road. Thank God. 
But there will be this time coming very shortly, I believe, coming soon, when the world will just follow after Antichrist. And here in the midpoint of tribulation, right at the time that the, the, the beast is calling on people to take his mark, here come these angels. God's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Listen to the eternal gospel. Pay attention to me. Babylon's going to fall. And if you take the mark of the beast, you will fall right along with it. The warnings come rolling out. And I want to ask you this morning, how would you react to angels in the atmosphere? I mean, think about being there just for a second. Put yourself on earth at the time. I don't want to be, I don't want any of you to be, but let's say you're on earth and you hear an angel all of a sudden fly overhead preaching salvation. Followed by a second prophesying destruction. Followed by a third proclaiming damnation. How would it affect you? (laughs) How would you react to such a thing? Here's the shocking truth. It appears that few, if any, respond at all. How can this be? How can people stand there unmoved and dispassionate and unresponsive to these angelic beings bringing direct messages from God on high? See, while Satan would try to sneak in and ease in and get people following a certain path of destruction, the Lord is clear right up front about what's coming. No surprise. You realize even when Jesus says says you don't know the day or the hour, he says that so we would be ready for the day or the hour. He's not saying, I'm going to trick you. I'm going to show up and you're not going to be ready. He's saying, be ready. Be ready now. But I still wonder how in the world can't there be instant repentant revival on the earth when these angels start flying? Wouldn't wouldn't that be enough? I mean, if an angel started flying today, I think I'd pay attention. I mean, I test it against the Word of God. (laughs) But I think I would listen. Why don't people listen when this takes place? Keep your finger here and go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, you Bible students know where I'm going with this, but we've got to take a look at this and consider something here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, picking up in verse 9, speaking about Antichrist, and Paul describing this man of lawlessness. And he says in verse 9, this is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception... Of wickedness for those who perish. So wickedness in and of itself is a deception. Evil and wrongdoing and sin, inherent in sin is deception, is a lie. If we do this, there will be certain benefits that outweigh the consequences. Sin is a deception. All the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. What? God will send delusion? I understand that sin is deluding. I understand that that sin and and wrongdoing, that that can deceive. 
And I understand that that's what Antichrist is all about. And that's what the devil is up to. Lies and deception. But God is going to send a deluding influence. Why? Listen, God so respects the right to reject that He sends this deluding influence to shore up rebellion. Do you understand what I'm saying? That He confirms their contempt for salvation. That the Lord, and this is wholly consistent with the love of God, the Lord allows not only a choice, but supports that choice when it's made. Even if the choice is against Him. Love demands a choice. Love requires a choice. And then, not only does love demand a choice, but then love honors that choice when it's been made. The deluding influence is God honoring the decision. You've heard the example, perhaps, of Pharaoh. You know how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Five times in Exodus, we're told, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And people say, that's so unfair to poor little Pharaoh. God hardened his heart. That is so unfair. He hardens his heart five times. The second five times. The first five times, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And so what we see is the Lord honoring the decision of Pharaoh. You're going to deny me? I'll help you out. You're going to reject me? I will support that. And that comes from a true love, a deep love, a real love that says, I will not do anything that will strip from you the choice that you are going to make. I will support you in it. So love honors the choice made, even if the choice is self-deluding. Revelation 22 verse 11 paints this very clearly. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. And I don't know why I pointed to all of you over here to talk about filthiness and you holiness. There's nothing to that. (laughs) But here's the question I want to ask. Why does God send these angels... Why dispatch the two witnesses or the 144,000 Jewish evangelists if people have chosen wrong and he's going to send the deluding influence? I'm, I'm trying to grasp this. And here's the thing. God honors the will of the people with delusion. But he maintains his will by sending all these gospel warnings. It may be their will to reject God. It is not His will for them to reject Him. It is not His desire for mankind to be lost. And so while He will respect the right to reject, at the same time, He still pulls out all the stops to get the message of the gospel of grace to anyone who might still listen. That's love. Ezekiel 33.11 God says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. And I said, turn back from your evil ways, pointing right up the middle. So it's really for all of us. God rarely gets all up in someone's face. That's just not been his M.O. But he remains wholly persistent. He stays at it. He continues bringing his message. He continues sharing the gospel. He continues supporting the truth because he is true. 
still, while multiplied millions by the grace of God are going to be saved in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, it appears that from the midpoint on, no one will. So again, I ask, if angels appeared in the atmosphere like this today, would people in America, would people in the world today respond? Would they immediately freak out and then get back to the business of life as we know it? Would they explain it away? Wow, that's just some kind of atmospheric disturbance. Would they be put off? I don't need no angel telling me what to do. Why are some people so blind to the gospel today? I understand the deluding influence in the tribulational period, but why today? 2 Thessalonians continues, if you actually go back to verse 7, tells us that the mystery of lawlessness is what? Already at work. It's already at work. Lawlessness has been at work. The mystery of lawlessness has been at work in this world for 2,000 years. Delusion and deception are already going on. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And again, that is the Antichrist. And Jesus said, Matthew 24, 12, because lawlessness has increased, most people's love would grow cold. And we're just watching it take place around us. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 also says, if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. John says, of this age in which we are, 1 John 4, 3, every spirit, and that is human or otherwise, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you has heard that it is coming He says, and now it is already in the world. Which is why we see what we see. The dull response, the negative reactivity, is because even now, here at the end of the age, deception and delusion and misdirection are at work. But I believe there is a specific type of misdirection that we really need to see. And this is what I got stuck on in chapter 14 and why we're still in chapter 14 this morning. And it's misdirected fear. Misdirected fear. Listen again to the first angel flyer's message. Verse 7, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. In a single verse, I believe we have just heard the last gospel. It's the last time the word gospel is used in the Bible. Right there. You might want to note that. The last time the gospel is ever to be preached on earth or at least above the earth in this age. And as Sice says, it's a last call of grace to an apostate world. And we get it here in one verse. You might say a gospel sermon in one verse. Why aren't your sermons so short, Rick? (laughs) Hey, first of all, we don't know the whole text. He could be flying along for like two hours up there. So give me a break. 
Second of all, my pulpit isn't quite so high, so, you know, got to fill it out. Listen, even with one verse, this eternal gospel is given by this angel as answer to the discern, to discerning deception, to dispelling delusion, and to managing misdirected fear. Now, I have that written in my notes. I want to read that again to be clear. This single gospel message, this verse, fear God, give Him glory, worship Him, is the answer, even now, right now, to discerning deception. It's the answer to dispelling delusion. It is the answer to managing misdirected fear. Fear God. Give Him glory. Worship Him. Fear God. Give Him glory. Worship Him. And all three of these points of this beautiful, succinct, eternal gospel can be summed up in the first two words, Fear God. Fear God. I don't know what fear is like in your life right now. I don't know what you fear. I don't know what your level of anxiety may be. But I can tell you at this point in the tribulation, fear is a widespread global constant. Life will be terrifying. At the midpoint of these seven years, people have been upset for the last two years watching the the Mueller investigation go on. Well, it's wrapped up now, so we can all go back to life as we know it. No, we can't. People just freaked out and anxious and upset and looking at the world. And I, I've had this thought many times as we've been studying through Revelation. We think we're anxious now. People have no idea what it's going to be like. And here in the midst of all this terror, all this fear, all this anxiety, at the end of the age, here comes the last gospel message, and it is fear God. Fear God. Do you? Do you fear God? Do we even comprehend what that really means? To fear God. In the Bible, Job asks, Job 28 verse 12, Where can wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? And then as if by divine inspiration, he answers himself in verse 28 of Job 28, To man, God said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil, that is understanding. Psalm 19 verse 9 says, The fear of the Lord is clean. It's a cleansing effect to fearing God. But then the verse continues, Enduring forever. You know what that tells us? Get this. We will never not fear God. We will always fear God. Because the fear of the Lord endures forever. Don't think that we're going to get to heaven and kick back with our feet up on the sofa and just go, Yeah, Lord, what up? (laughs) We will always fear God. Psalm 111, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 8, verse 13, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Maybe this will begin to help us define, do we fear God or not? Because if we fear the Lord, then we're going to hate evil. It's a natural reaction to the fear of God, to hate evil. Proverbs 8.13 continues, Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate, says the Lord. Therefore, if I fear God, I hate those things too. 
Proverbs 14, 26. The fear of the Lord. In the fear of the Lord, I like this, there is strong confidence. Want to make anxiety go away? When your confidence is in the fear of God. In fearing Him more than any other thing. And His children will have refuge in that. Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Therefore, by fearing God, I live. Which is, I believe, part of the reason why the eternal gospel is being preached by this angel. Fear God at a last moment, a last opportunity that people might live. Proverbs 15.33 The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. Proverbs 19.23 The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. I got to go back just a second here. Proverbs 15.33 again says the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. What that tells us is the reason why theologians get it wrong is they don't fear the Lord. The reason why the professors in their seminaries (laughs) teach falsehood is not because they haven't studied the right books or covered the right commentaries or gone back over the right information. The problem is they don't fear God. Because the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. That's where our understanding comes from. Proverbs 23, 17, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always, once again, always, enduring forever. This is an ongoing thing. This isn't just something for this puny little human life. We've got to fear God now, because you know ultimately it'll be fine. We'll be buds, but right now we've got to fear Him. No, this is forever. Fear God. Isaiah 33, verse 5 tells us, He will be the stability in your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is His treasure. Wait, the fear of the Lord is whose treasure? Listen to the verse again. He will be the stability of your time, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. And the fear of the Lord is His treasure. And I believe He is none other than Jesus. And I'll explain that in a few minutes. Bottom line is this. I said it midweek, I'll say it again. The more we fear God, the less we fear. Fear God, and you will be fearless. Any and everything else out there that might cause consternation or anxiety or worry or stress or fear, anything else, the more I fear God, the less I will fear. Fear of evil. Fear of loss. Fear of man, fear of the future, fear of the past, fear of life, fear of death, fear of the end of the age. Christian brothers and sisters, as we study through Revelation, while these things should make us sit up and take notice, they should not make us worry or fear what might happen to us. Fear God. Because the fear of God makes you fear less. And I believe one of the greatest issues in our day, especially among Christians, is that we have lost the fear of the Lord. I think churches across the board, and I, I, you know, I'm not the judge. But what I see from my perspective is when churches go off the rails or Christians begin to embrace things like New Age uh, ideas and philosophies, it happens 
Because we have forgotten to fear God. Because perhaps some have lost the fear of the Lord. Now, someone might respond to this, all this fear talk, fear God. I mean, wait a minute, you say God is love. And then you tell me to fear Him? God is love, but I'm supposed to be afraid? Doesn't the Bible also say, love casts out fear? Oh, you read that verse, did you? Perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4.18, let's address that. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So yes, it says that. Seems like a contradiction then that we would fear God and love God. If we're in the love of God, wouldn't that cast out all fear? You got to read the whole verse. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. What fear is he talking about? Fear of punishment. Fear of condemnation. Fear of eternal damnation. And the precursor to this perfect love casts out fear statement is this. 1 John 4, 17. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. We have confidence. I'm not afraid of condemnation. I'm not afraid that I'm going to be punished. That fear is cast out by the love of God. Perfected in the love of God. My confidence in Jesus Christ. And then John says, so also we are in this world. That is, we're loving and we're fearless. We don't walk around in fear and trepidation that we're going to be lost or God is going to cast us out. Or at the last minute, He might decide, you're in, you're out, you're no good, I like you, don't really like you so much. Not if I've been saved by grace. Not if I am in the love of God. Man, that makes me fearless. And yet I still fear God. Those who love God no longer fear punishment. But again, we will always fear God. Let's get a clearer bead on fear. There are two words, Greek and Hebrew, for fear in the Bible. The Greek word is interesting. It rhymes with Yahweh. It's Yare. Yare is the Hebrew for fear. The Greek word for fear is phobos, where we get phobia. Both of these words, and the English, by the way, and most languages have a dual meaning for the word fear. And there's a reason for it. Fear can either be a feeling or it can be a frame of mind. Fear can either be an emotional reaction to something or it can be a positional response to something. That is, you can be afraid or you can fear. And there's a difference. There's the physical, fearful feeling of anxiety or dread. That feeling that causes a rush of physical reaction. You know what I'm talking about. It it can be anything from a threat to your life to being at the top of the roller coaster to watching a scary movie. These things can cause this, this physical reaction where adrenaline starts to surge and blood starts to pump and sweat starts to bead and your hands start to shake. And that's, that's fear. That's the physical side. That's one definition of fear. But on the other side, there's fear as a mindset. There's fear as an approach, which is profound reverence, worshipful awe, the deepest respect. A most holy and venerable honor. One 
definition of fear is the soul driven by flesh. The other definition of fear is the soul led by the spirit. Point is, God deserves our deepest, most holy fear. God is indescribably awesome. And so we fear God. Jesus is incomparable. So we fear Christ. The Holy Spirit of God is uncontainable. Understand, when we sing, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. That we want to be overwhelmed by your presence. That's a great sentiment. It's invited by the Spirit of God. But understand what we're saying here. This is God we're talking about, not a pal. And so when we want to enter into His holy presence, we are entering into a most fearful place. A place of deepest respect and worship and awe. And there aren't even words to describe what we owe God. Fear God. Psalm 89 verse 6. Who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? I'll tell you, those three angels are not. Remarkable that they're flying. Incredible beings. Amazing in their creation and yet not God. Who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones, or we might say in the counsel of the saints, and awesome above all those who are around Him. Fear God. Look at chapter 15, Revelation 15 verse 4. In the song of Moses and the Lamb, they sing, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before You. For Your righteous acts have been revealed. Bringing about a holy fear. And Jesus exemplified this fear for us. So remarkable. So amazing. This, the whole plan of God that He would put on flesh and dwell among us and be human. Fully God and fully man. And then show us what does it mean to have the fear of God. Do you realize that Jesus had the fear of the Lord? How's that work? I don't know. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2 tells us the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That when Jesus Christ walked the earth, Messiah in sandals, He feared God. He wasn't afraid of His own Father, but He had absolute honor and worshipful respect and holy awe for God. Though He Himself was God in the flesh. Yet He worshipped God with a most holy fear. And get this, verse 3, Isaiah 11.3 says, He will delight in the fear of the Lord. There's a thought. <laughs> Delighting in the fear of God. Do you delight in the fear of the Lord? I love to be in that place where I fear God. I take joy in the trembling of my spirit at the presence of the Lord. To delight in the fear of the Lord, that's Jesus. And again, someone might say, wait, 
God the Son is afraid of God the Father. No, He's not afraid. He deeply reveres and honors and respects the Father, even as the Father deeply reveres, honors, and respects the Son. The last gospel, this last gospel sermon, is a call to fear, glorify, and worship God. And if you look at it, he takes us all the way back to the most primitive relationship between humanity and God. That is of created and creator. Fear God, give Him glory, worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. He did all these remarkable things. You can stand up on one of the Olympics and have a raging storm come blowing through and feel that physical fear. Man, I can sit in my house on a windy Whidbey Island storm and fear perhaps one of the trees is going to come down. I can look about and see the power and the wonder and the splendor that is in created nature and be fearful when the tornadoes show up or the hurricanes blow or the earth begins to quake. All of these things, they bring about a sense of fear and awe at the world around us. Hey, this world was just made by Him. This world is just the work of His hands. I can fear what one man might do to me, might do against me. I read an article about a guy who got in an accident, jumped out of his car and stabbed the other driver. We hear about shootings. We hear about terrorism. And these things can make us fearful. God is the creator above and over all other things. He made the world. So the fear of God has to be more than fear of what God can do. Oh, it is. Truly, there is a fear of what God can do, but the real fear of God is a fear of who God is. Fearing Him for His nature, His character, His very being. There are so many examples through the Bible. I want to give you just one. If you'll turn back to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. You may know the story. Hear it again. Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came about, after these things, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And the two of them walked on together. Such a picture. Such a picture here. 
The wood of the offering laid on His Son? Where the wood of the offering would be laid on the back of Jesus, the Son? The two of them walked on and Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. Two things to note. Number one, Isaac is probably 30 years old here. And the second thing to note is that Abraham is being fully prophetic and he doesn't even know it. God will provide a lamb. So they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood, which means Isaac had to be willing. Because if he was, in fact, 30 years old, no old man's going to bind his son and lay him on the wood unless the son allows it. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now, watch this, for now, listen, for now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now, wait a minute. Wouldn't God know whether or not Abraham fears him? Doesn't God know the, the thoughts of, of, of mankind? Doesn't he understand? So, so why would God say, now I know. Hey, I find, now I've proven to myself you fear me. I think God did know. I'm certain God did know. But ever the teacher, God needed to be sure Abraham knew. Abraham needed to be sure that he knew that he feared God. This is the first time in the Bible fear describes a person's attitude or approach toward God. In this chapter. Ironically, it's also the first time the word love is used in the Bible when God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. First word, first use of the word love. And so in this chapter we see love and we see fear applied together, the two at the same time. And here's the thing to get. Abraham feared God more than he loved his only son, Isaac. And maybe that helps us understand a bit more of what it means to fear God. To fear God more than that which you love the most. That's fearing God. Now, wonderfully, Abraham was not left without a sacrifice. In verse 13, Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behind him, behold, behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Now, here's the problem. Prophecy gone awry. Because if if you note earlier, Abraham said, God will provide, verse 8, for himself, the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Well, God didn't provide a lamb. He provided a ram. Lamb, ram. What's the big difference? Prophecy, my friends, is always precise. God will provide a lamb. And indeed, 2,000 years later, God provided a lamb on the same mountain of sacrifice, Mount Moriah, 
in Jerusalem, God provided a lamb. Just as Abraham said. But get this. God will provide a lamb, he prophetically speaks. 2,000 years later, God provides a lamb. Another 2,000 years go by. Placing us somewhere about where we are now. Maybe a little further out. And suddenly, rather than the blood of a lamb, it is the blood of Megiddo and the coming of the reaper. The blood of man will be spilled. 2,000 years ago, the blood of Christ was spilled in this same place. And the Abraham-Isaac offering that whole scenario of a father sacrificing his only beloved son. A picture, obviously, of, of God the Father and the sacrifice of Jesus. Only God didn't stay His hand when it came to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. When the Lamb was sacrificed, fully all of His blood was spilt. And the spilling of the blood of Jesus proved once and for all, for all history and for all humanity, the love of God, a God who deserves our most holy fear. Do you fear God more than the person or place or thing that you love the most? And I think that's the question for us to chew on. The fear of the Lord elevates glory and worship above, of, of God above all other things, which means I fear God more than I love myself. I fear God more than I love my reputation. I fear God more than I love my friends. I fear God more than I love my family, more than I love my wife, more than I love my children. More than I love life itself. I fear God more. That's the fear of God we're talking about. See, when you fear God more than you love the thing that you love the most, the thing that you love the most cannot turn your eyes away from Jesus. Nothing in this world can take you away from following Him. And as much as we share the love of God in this place, should every last person in this place turn away from God, if you fear God, you will not. Do you fear God than that which you love the most? Revelation 14 is a fearful chapter. We hear all these startling angelic admonitions coming out of the atmosphere. And then we see in verse 14 of Revelation 14, Behold, a white cloud and sitting on the cloud, one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And that is Jesus. And we talked about it Wednesday night. And you can go back and listen if you missed that teaching. That is Jesus. And then we see down in verse 20, the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. This is Jesus, the reaper. The reaper comes and he holds tight to a sharp sickle for reaping. But unlike all the Stupid fancies of the world. He's not black hooded. He is golden crowned. And he doesn't have skeletal hands. He has nail scarred hands. And he doesn't come to threaten death. He has already come to offer life. 
But when He comes the second time, Revelation 1-7 tells us, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. Here's my point. The Lamb came. The Lamb came. God provided a Lamb. The reaper is coming. Don't be afraid of the reaper when he comes. Fear him now. Fear God now. Fear God with reverent, awesome, holy fear. Give him glory because his hour of judgment is coming. Worship him who made you, created you, created me to be with him forever. Only as we learn to fear God will we, His people, be useful for the harvest. Two final verses. Acts 9.31 The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up. How? Going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The church continued to increase Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Want to be effective in evangelism? You want to persuade friends and family that you are a follower of Jesus Christ and invite them to be the same? Then fear God. Give Him glory. Worship Him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for the Gospel. The gospel truth of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who you provided. I'm so grateful to you that you chose to speak this truth so long ago and you have continued speaking it across the ages. So thankful, Father, for the good news. But Lord, it is good news that brings us to fear. And I pray, Lord, that not a one of us will be afraid of our Father. Afraid of the Son, afraid of the Holy Spirit, but Lord, we would fear you deeply. We would understand a little more what it means to be reverent in your presence, to be in awe of you. In our worship, Lord, may we be more reverent. In our prayers, Lord, may we be more humble. In our lives, Father, may we walk with that fearful, Love for our one and true God. And Father, I just pray over our fellowship that your greatness, your love, and our fear of you would dispel all other fears. Lord, we're carrying a lot of fear we don't need to carry. People here perhaps this morning are afraid of things they need not be afraid of if we will but fear you, Lord. And so Holy Spirit... I ask for a setting free this morning of the fear of all other things. I do not ask that we would be set free from the fear of God, but we would engage more deeply in this holy fear. And that everyone here would be free of all other fears. In Jesus' name, amen. If there is something you have been struggling with fear-wise, and you need to be freed from it, I invite you to come and pray. I invite you, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, to do that this morning.
Just come and talk to any one of these folks around the four corners of the room. They'll pray with you. You can receive Jesus today and start living a life that is fearless in the fear of God. If you want to be baptized, we can do that. If you want a fresh anointing of the Spirit of God, we can do that. He can do that. But whatever your need, you have to respond. You have to move. So I invite you to come forward while we stand together and sing. Let's stand.